content warning for murder, abuse, spoilers, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, and the guy who didn't like musicals. Hello and welcome to the Billy Shears Club. I'm a voice you're not used to hearing in this part of the introduction, but I'll be moderating today's panel. I'm Maddie Campbell. I'm Leo Gacy. And I'm Kiana Shabazz. And today we are looking at a set selection of musicals about or including murder as a plot device. Uh, startling hi startlingly high number as it turns out, so we've broken it into two parts for you. The first part is going to be horror comedy, and the second part is going to be musicals that use murder as social commentary, or as a plot thread or device. So, with that in mind, we noticed that there were some through lines with all four shows that we kind of want to bring up right off the bat to give you an idea of some ideas that we might be referencing later, before we get into more specifics about each show. So, uh, Kiona, do you want to start with yours? Uh, yeah. So, the idea that I think is kind of found throughout all four of the works uh, that stood out to me most was desire as a sort of, like, self-perpetuating means of action. You know, I think across all four musicals, we're seeing, you know, various permutations of I want this thing or I was denied this thing. So now I want to get this thing in this way. And the progression of fulfilling those desires just kind of pushing the plot, in my opinion. Yeah, and it comes up different ways in each show, which I think we'll talk about more when we get there individually, because I knew you were going to bring that up. So I made sure to make note of that as we went through. The other two big ideas we noticed were the way that these shows tend to use comedy rather than tragedy and the way that they tend to rely on murder and death as a spectacle. Uh, Leo, I think spectacle was your point. Do you want to bring that one up? Yeah. So, I mean, the one that's most obvious within is obviously Chicago, where the whole plot of it is about a bunch of murderers becoming famous and morphins from their murder. But uh, even beyond that, like, the the point of that is is that things like cruelty and death are inherently very interesting to people both in and out of the universe. That's why we watch these things. And so you have Chicago where both the execution of an innocent woman and the actual murder and then acquitting of various uh, people is seen as a vehicle for stardom. And then in Heathers, you have suicide becoming a major trend uh, and being seen as something that's almost redemptive for the people who do it. And then in The Guy Who Didn't Like Musicals, you have all of these people dying to the nasty brain goop parasites. But it kind of almost being seen as, from the point of view of the aliens at least, like very like liberating and like wonderful and like making the world like a brighter, louder, more beautiful place. And then Little Shop of Horrors is the one I think that's least inherently connected to that one. Uh, but the whole play very much feels almost Greek chorusy, and so it almost feels as you, the audience, are participating in the spectacle of the horrible things that go on within it. And then also Seymour gaining his fame by murdering a bunch of people and feeding it to the plant, and just the, the cruelty that's required to get the social recognition that he wants is something that kind of ties into that. Yeah. With Heathers in Chicago, I'll talk about this more when we get there, but I think there's a specific connecting thread of murder as myth-making that I really want to talk about because I think it's cool. Uh, the last thing I want to discuss is why are all of these comedies? Uh, some of this, I think, is just inherent to the genre. Most musicals are comedies. As a matter of fact, the genre was originally called musical comedy. Uh, tragedies like Town or Spring Awakening or heck even Rent are more of an outlier than the general rule. Most musicals are funny, or at least they end happily. So I think some of that is just the conventions of writing musicals tend to lean more into using grim subjects for black comedy rather than using them to highlight something. Generally, if you want to do serious theater, you do a straight play or an opera, one or the other. I think the other reason is that comedy itself is a safe place to explore ideas that could be taboo or transgressive. Like, what if you murdered the popular girl who bullied you every day and then got to be in charge of the school because of it? It's a, a sort of revenge or power fantasy almost in some ways. And so there's, it's not catharsis, because it's not so much the purging of emotion as it is sort of indulging in the idea of suspending the rule and seeing what would happen. And because of that, I think 
comedy lets us explore murder as a tool in a way that tragedy would not, even though these shows have, in most cases, downer endings. They don't tend to be tragic in tone. It more is like satirical or kind of a grim sort of laughter. Some of it is also this that death can be abrupt or unexpected, and oftentimes comedy relies on things being abrupt or unexpected. Like in The Guy Who Didn't Like Musicals, Charlotte and Sam get shot in the middle of their number in Act One, and that's just part of the joke. So I don't know if I have a full thesis for why... Maybe it's just maybe it's just sampling bias. Maybe we just chose black comedies because they're more fun to talk about, which is also true. But I think there is something to be said for the constraints of musicals and for what comedy does for an audience. Because comedies are about like the common man. Like the tragedy is the fall of the great. Comedy is the uplifting of the common. And so I think in that there's a reason that musicals that tend to be about grimmer subjects tend to be black comedies rather than tragedies. With that in mind, uh, shall we launch into Little Shop of Horrors? Let's launch. Sure thing. And so kind of uh, jumping off of what you were saying, uh, Madeline, about like comedies. Well, actually, no, the thought I had uh, springing off of that. Comedies tend to invite, I think, further analysis when it comes to treating those taboo or dark topics. Um, I think a lot of times, as you said, comedies can make the subject matter more palatable to an audience. It's easier to consume. Um, but something interesting and something that I think speaks to the quality of the comedies in these uh, dark works is that they invite that further analysis. Um, so when I say that, I mean, going off of what Leo said with the Greek chorus, right? We have those three young girls that do act as a sort of like, like very abridged dithyram as we go through the story of Little, of, uh, Little Shop. And what's interesting to me is how it's at once kind of distancing you from the events. You feel that you are an observer but at the same time, it's so welcoming, right? The doo wop style of the songs, along with the kind of spectacle of watching these horrific events unfolding, it draws you in. And I think part of the purpose of comedy is that it kind of necessitates a retrospection, right? Why did I laugh at that? Why was that funny to me? Was that even funny? Was that something to be laughed at, you know? Um, so really when it comes to murder, right? Cause that's the spectacle at the core of Little Shop that and I suppose the alien world conquest. We yeah, really see murder. <laughs> Did you say in puppetry? Yeah, no. Frank Oz directed the movie version made in the late 80s, partially, I think, because the puppetry required for Audrey 2 was so intense. Right, I can see that. I'd need a master to do some masterful work. They did a great job with her. Mm-hmm. But, but I interrupted yeah. you. I'm sorry, continue. It's all right. Uh, so, again, with murder facilitating the desire, that's how Seymour comes up. And it's interesting when you think about it, he lives in Skid Row, right? Whether it's affectionately known as such or not, right? Uh, we get it early on in the musical, and it's kind of establishing as his I Want song also. He wants to leave Skid Row. He wants to get out of that downtown uh, slum, poverty-stricken lifestyle with all the you know violence and abuse that can come with it. And so it's interesting that his ticket to fame, so to speak, as uh, someone mentioned earlier, is murder. In order to escape the environment that is sort of killing his soul, he has to kill others. And so what we see is this sort of becomes a self-perpetuating spiral where in order to maintain these ill-gotten goods, Seymour has to continually go down this spiral, right? Um, there's even a moment at the climax or towards the climax of the film um, when, or say towards the climax, when Seymour is first persuaded to kill. Right. And Audrey, too, is using that sort of rhetoric of you can have all these things that you desire, including Audrey one, you know. And so ultimately in the original, because there's different versions of this musical, the one I'm most familiar with is the 86 version with. Uh, oh, wow. How can it's I forget It's the Seymour, right? Pardon? I thought it was Rick Moranis as Seymour, but yes, I could be is. wrong. Thank you. No, you're absolutely right. Come on now. Yes, yeah, Rick Moranis. I just couldn't remember his name. But yeah. And so. It's just interesting to me how ultimately Seymour ends up getting destroyed. And that's how these sorts of things go. You know, a friend of ours brought up how this is sort of a take on a Faustian bargain. And I can see that Seymour makes a deal with the devil and is ultimately destroyed. Um, and yet it's funny. Oh, too. Sorry, you go. <laughs> You're fine. Go ahead. 
The interesting thing is that in the movie, Seymour isn't destroyed. The movie actually changes the ending of the musical. In the original Broadway, or rather off-Broadway, well, later Broadway, long story, production, Seymour ends up getting killed by Audrey II in the end. And Audrey II's cuttings go on to take over the entire world. In the movie, they change it so that Seymour and Audrey win and beat Audrey II. And the reason for that is they actually filmed the original ending first, and then it tested really poorly with focus groups, because with a movie, you don't get that release of seeing the actors at the end and knowing everybody's okay. <laughs> oh, that's such a bummer, though, because I loved the original ending so much. Like, I feel like that, because it works so well as like, kind of like a Greek play, they think the moral works better if it just is followed through on of like, no, you spiraled too hard and now you can't pull it back of like, like you, you can't undo what you've done. And now your day of reckoning has come where the plants eat you and then take over the world. And it's a really good song. I think it was also the ending for the original movie that the musical was actually based on because the musical itself is an adaptation of a 1950s B movie, which is why there's so much reference to like 50s pop culture and Audrey's dream being like the American dream in suburbia. It's a nod to the fact that the source material was a 50s B movie, which is also probably where a lot of the introductory narration from the Greek chorus comes from. That's why Oren's a greaser. Yeah. I think another thing to note, uh, just going back to the differences between the different uh, versions of the, of the uh, work, in the movie version, I don't remember if this was included uh, with the like official ending, but I know that they shot it. Um, they have the somewhere this green reprise, which was used in the original to kind of signify how Audrey II had taken over the world. But in the film version, it's Seymour and Audrey, and they kind of seem to have that American dream nice green lawn, nice white picket fence on the way to a lovely family. But in the flower beds outside of the uh, gate, we can see that those flowers are actually uh, spawns of Audrey too. Oh, so I didn't like, know no that. Matter which version you go, yeah. <laughs> oh, some way huh? or another, things fall apart. Yeah, in the musical also, there's an instrumental reprise of somewhere that's green when Seymour feeds Audrey to the plant. Which is especially grim because the melody that closes the verses for Somewhere That's Green or the chorus, one of the two, is the exact same sequence of notes Alan Menken and Howard Ashman would later use for Part of Your World. Oh, God. And it's the same writing team. If you list, go back and listen to it, it's da-da-da-da. Oh, dear God. I mean, uh, Ariel also ends up selling her soul, so to speak, to the devil. So yeah. Ariel is a Faust story, but it turns out well. Little Shop of Horrors is a Faust story where it follows the predictable route of the protagonist getting ruined. One of the mm -hmm. other interesting overlaps I noticed between um, Little Shop and Heathers in terms of how they use murder is that in both cases, like you pointed out, Kiona, it's a method to socially climb, but also both of them start out with the victim being somebody we want dead. Somebody that the protagonist doesn't yeah. actually even kill. So in both cases, both you and the, the, as an audience member and the protagonist are sort of won over to the side of maybe this is okay. Because in Little Shop, it's, it's Oren. He dies unexpectedly. Uh, Seymour kind of kills him through <laughs> negligence. But because of that, Audrey gets fed and Seymour gets what he wants. And then later in Heathers, well, we'll talk about it in Heathers, but it's that same sort of progression of it's always somebody that you don't mind seeing die. And then it's somebody where it gets a little bit more iffy. And then depending on how your plot plays out, either the protagonist steps back or they don't. Well, okay. Here's a question, though, with Little Shop, because Oren, he doesn't kill because he chokes on the gas, and then... Um, Mushnik just gets eaten by the plant. He's planning on just telling him to take care of it. Uh, he has no part in that. And, like, in The Meek Shall Inherit, like, he's talking about, like, uh, is it worth killing? But I don't know if it, like, does it ever imply that, like, he actually willingly kills someone? Mushnik is an edge case because in the book, Seymour tells Mushnik, I put the receipts inside Audrey for safekeeping, essentially luring him inside. Yeah, but the, the musical, like, it's, it's an accident. And so, like, that's Accident, like, right. you know, it's sort of like a liable mission, but in terms of murder. Yeah. You know, I mean, Seymour, we know he's, like, totally complicit. Had, had like, circumstance not intervened, I do believe he would have tipped his hand. And Yeah, the, in, yeah. yeah um, no, that's actually part of the reason why Mushnik dies is Seymour, like, he threatens to give a statement to the police. 
And then also later with the meek shall inherit specifically, all of the lyrics are basically Seymour saying, well, as long as I stay passive and Audrey keeps killing people, I get what I want without technically being responsible. The meek shall inherit. Essentially, he's he's recognizing that he's technically culpable, but also trying to argue his way out of it. With Heathers, it's a little bit more clear. Oh, yeah. Well, no, like, that's, that's kind of the thing that's very interesting, though, is because, like, like, I very much agree that Seymour is very culpable, but I think the fact that he never, like, physically murders someone himself, I think, kind of like you said, like, increases the sympathy in some ways, because he's just such, like, he's such a wet blanket of a man. Like, he's a cast of milk toast all the way. We we can we can agree with that. Like the like the bit in Feed Me where it's just like the I have so so many strong reservations. Mm-hmm. Like it's he's he can he's kind of pathetic in a very sympathetic way. But just like the the thing that Meek Chill inherits is, is very does a very good job of writing that line of both keeping him incredibly pathetic. But also, like, wow, dude, you are complicit in a lot of terrible stuff. And then, like, depending on what ending it is, like, I mean, either way, eventually Audrey comes back in some regard in a way that he can't control because he has given up his power because his meekness isn't niceness. It's just cowardice. Yeah, there's a bit of tragic irony there, too, because part of the reason Audrey loves Seymour is because he is so meek and so comparatively safe, especially compared to Orin, who is straight up abusive to her multiple times. But the irony of it is, at least in the musical, Seymour is ultimately the least safe person she could have chosen, and he gets her killed. Yeah. Going back to Desire for a second, because I have a very weird Pepe Sylvia conspiracy board thread for Little Shop and Desire, which is I think you could arguably interpret Audrey too as a symbol of desire or at least of envy, especially at the very beginning where Seymour is literally bleeding himself dry to feed it, even though he gains no benefit. And some of that is just Seymour cares about this plant because he cares about plants and wants to make sure that they're healthy. But I think it also kind of represents this idea that sometimes if you want something, especially in that really like, self-destructive, envious way, feeding that desire only makes it stronger. Audrey, too, is never going to be satisfied, and Seymour is never going to fully get everything he wants, because he's going to have to keep maintaining the lie. No, I think that's... Interesting... Sorry, you go first. I was just going to say, I think another interesting layer to that is how, like, in addition to that desire kind of, like, being corrupt and cannibalizing itself, I kind of see... Like, I don't see abuse so much in, I don't really see it in at all in, like, the guy who doesn't like musicals, but in all the other works, it's, like, this very interesting, like, not trifecta, but, like, almost demented synergy between love, abuse, and desire. When it comes to Seymour and his complicity in all those murders, right, and him, like, ultimately being the actual big bad of the play, um, of the, you know, the story. Um, so, earlier on, like, back in Skid Row, uh, Seymour singing poor on my life. I've always been poor, right? Kind of letting us into like his depression, just his woe is me mentality. But when he gets into his relationship with Mushmik, and we don't really get too much, but we get this. Um, uh, he gave me, he took me in, gave me shelter, bread, uh, bed, crusted bread, and a job. Treats me like dirt and calls me a slob, which I am. And when we see Seymour kind of operating, this is also why I think he kind of dithers so much when it comes to actually committing to the act of murder. Not that committing to murder is a good thing, but just the act of like being assertive and declaring what you want and going for it. Seymour is very much that punching bag, that pincushion type of guy where he just takes it. And so when it comes back to his actions over the course of the play, an interesting thought I have is, you know, the, the mental gymnastics you play, basically dithering with being dithering with actually committing to the murders is Seymour's way of maintaining his own kind of like innocence in his own head. So he doesn't have to acknowledge the fact that he is, as you were saying, Maddie, like worse than the actual abuser or worse than like, you know, the neglectful or, you know, meat and boss, like worse than any of the other things he's actually gone through in his life. He is the one that's destroying all those good things because he is not really strong enough to go after what he wants in a healthy way. 
And so he turns to Andre Chu and allows himself to be seduced with all those lies. Yeah, think- Seymour oh, refuses to accept. I- sorry, no, you go. Uh, I was just gonna say, kind of in in that regard, like about the 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 dithering and about the like the the what you said about the murder of him, like not dithering because it's necessarily a bad thing, but because it's making a decision, and it to a certain degree, it feels mean. I want to go back to like feed me in that regard of like when uh, Audrey too is like talking to him about like, like what do you want, and he starts singing about it. Like the the thing is, he wants to make people envious. Like he wants to ride a motorcycle. Like uh, he like what is the riding around like I was James Dean, making all the guys in the corner turn green. He <laughs> wants to be Orin, like to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Like there is, he wants to have Audrey. He wants to have the motorcycle. He wants to have other people envy him. He wants to be on top. Like I'm not saying that he necessarily wants to physically abuse Audrey. But at the same time, there's honestly the major line between him and Oren is confidence. And to a certain degree, sadism. He's not as sadistic as Oren is. But like, the. He's she pretty is, still. Yes. Uh, yes. Still sadistic. Uh, but. Uh, or I guess istic. No, there's no D in masochism. Um, but it could be. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, but like, no. Like, I think I think you hit both hit it on the money, and that like he's 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 very sympathetic, but he's just not a good person. But it's like it's so relatable, and like the way that like a person who even seems like a wet blanket, it just tempted with enough envy, can be pushed over in a way that might make us still cheer for him because or uh right <laughs> like the dude it's like i'll buy it yeah i just feel so bad for audrey and all of this audrey deserves better i will say Oren and audrey too are probably the most fun roles in the whole show Audrey 2 has been on my list of dream roles since I was old enough to be vaguely aware of Little Shop of Horrors as a show, and that's mostly because my dad would sing the dentist song when taking me to the dentist. Well, be a dentist. You have a talent for causing things pain. I think we've touched on everything we want to touch on. Part of me, I was wondering about this, I didn't put it in my notes. But you bringing it up has convinced me that there might be a little bit of analysis where sort of like Audrey and Audrey 1 specifically, not Audrey 2, at least I hope not, and mimetic desire. The idea that you want something just because you've seen other people want it. And the Mm. question of like, does Seymour actually really want Audrey? Or does he just want her because that's what he thinks he should want? Does Audrey really want, I mean, obviously Audrey wants to get out of Skid Row. I think we would all agree that that is not a good place to be uh, based on how it's depicted. But does Audrey really, does Audrey really want the life in suburbia or does she just want that because that's what the advertisements in the fifties, which the show is parodying told her to want. I would definitely agree with Audrey, you know, uh, kind of, on a living through that mimetic desire. Yeah, definitely, because even in the song Somewhere This Green, she's referencing all those hallmarks of the 50s, you know, the TV dinners, howdy doody, like this very picturesque Sears robot catalog of experiences that has been handed to her by advertisers of the day. When it comes to Seymour, like, I hear what you're saying, like, about him, like, essentially mimicking the desires that are common around him. I would say I feel like his desire for Audrey is unique only in the sense that we never see him express any attraction or notice or interest with other females. But at the same time, how many other like leading women are actually in the play? The Ronettes are technically school children, so Audrey's kind of the only ticket in town. So I guess that's kind of further evidence for maybe Seymour, yeah, just kind of mimicking those desires. I wonder, was there ever a moment they shared that was specific to them that wasn't in the context of, like, her being abused or Seymour hiding something from Audrey, too? You could argue that the lead-up, in the libretto at least, into suddenly Seymour is, like, a genuinely sweet moment between them where Audrey admits that she feels guilty that Oren is dead because she felt like she wished it. 
because she wanted him out of her life. And Seymour apologizes to her and comforts her and promises to protect her. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, yeah, kind of in, in that regard, I think Seymour does want her, but like kind of as a part of like the package, so to speak. Like, I'm not sure if that counts as mimetic desire or not, but kind of like for both of them, that like they see, like, hmm. They see, I don't think Audrey necessarily wants Seymour too, like, too much. It's more like just a man that is nice to her. And Seymour is that guy who is there at the time. But like for, for Seymour, Audrey is. It's not just because she's told to want her. I think he does inherently want her to some degree, but it's just, like, she's a part of that, like, big-ticket, like, man-in-charge-with-money, hot-wife, motorcycle uh, dream that he has, like, if that makes any sense. That's, like, not necessarily something that he wouldn't have without advertisements. I think that's something that he has out of envy, uh... But yeah, I think he wants her more as an object or as an idea than as a person. Um, and then, I can see that. Yeah. Also with the somewhere that's green, I think very much feeding into like what you were saying, Kiana, um, is like the in the movie, the way that it's filmed, it's just like it looks like a plastic dollhouse that she's mm-hmm. having her whole dream in. And it's just, it's, it's, it makes it even sadder, I'll be honest, of just like, she she's in kind of such a rough place she doesn't even fully comprehend i think what a good life would look like she just has Mm -hmm. to kind of build it out of advertisements and like out of what her life she thinks should be and then just can recognize that it's not that but doesn't know how to make a real version that is that i would agree that dissonance is definitely driving her because when does she have time to really reconcile her experiences I doubt she had a healthy, like, parental figures growing up. And it's interesting, like, what you're saying just made me think, like, going back to Suddenly Seymour, that sweet moment they share. And I love that song to pieces. Like, I love that song to pieces. But, you know, kind of in light of the darkness, because I always view it in terms of the comedy, you know, the comedic aspects of Little Shop. But when Seymour tells her, here, take my Kleenex, wipe that lipstick away, show me your face as clear as the morning, Right. And then, yeah, I know things are bad, but now they're okay. But, like, that part, like, show me your face clear as the morning. Like, you could, you could, and I think it's appropriate to interpret that as, like, oh, I want to see you without the trappings of, you know, this, like, you know, lifestyle that's been forced upon you, or I want to see you pure, which kind of a desire for a Madonna figure, but we won't get into that. But what's interesting is, like, I'm pretty sure Audrey mentions earlier how Oren, like, has her dress the way that we see her. You know, with the heavier makeup, with the low-cut clothing. And so Seymour asking her, you know, like the first moment, the first genuine moment we could see them sharing together, he kind of interpreted as him stating his claim, so to speak, like wiping away the final traces of Oren and kind of like asserting himself as the leading man in Audrey's life for the purpose of, you know, having the dream that he's always wanted. That's interesting. Yeah, the costuming angle is a fun one. Um, before, we, I would like us to move on to the guy who didn't like musicals, but because you brought up that you really love Suddenly Seymour, and I do too, it's great. Um, before we move on, I think a good little cap for each musical would be us naming our favorite song from the album. For Ooh. me, it is Get It. Uh, with Dentist is a very close second, but Get It is such a good, good, venomous, tempting, terrifying <sighs> villain song, and it makes me happy. Um, oh. oh, sorry, you go first. <laughs> well, I say, yeah, it's a toss up uh, for me between Suddenly Seymour, of course, and Skid Row. Like, I love what the movie version does. Like, oh my gosh, the harmonies uh, that the Ronettes do, just the whole, it's so visceral and emotive. I really love both of them. I think for me, uh, so potentially weird favorite. Um, well, okay, my favorite is Dentist because I love a cheesy villain and um, revealing my terrible taste, uh, I kind of had a crush on Oren uh, when I watched the movie uh, because, once again, terrible taste. 
But I also I have Jenny, to ask: Was this in spite of Steve Martin or because of Steve Martin? Uh, Steve Martin neutral. Um, <laughs> I just like a jerk who has fun being a jerk. Um, but well, I know uh, someone's getting a leather jacket for Christmas. <laughs> And yet I am marrying a total sweetheart. Um, That's what I meant. But I also really love the finale from the original version, the Don't Feed the Plants. I love that song so much um, because it's just, it's, it's the most Greek chorus of all of the songs. It's just singing at you the moral, but it's so like fun and loud and spectacly. Uh, it's just, uh, like the piano is great. And then the big plants stomping through the streets are great. It's just, oh, it's peak musical. I love it. Yeah, a lot of stage productions of Little Shop will also have Orin, Audrey, Mushkin, and Seymour uh, poking their heads through the Audrey 2 puppet out of different flowers for that finale. Oh, I love that. Delicious. It's great. I got to see a live production a few years back at the Stratford Theatre Festival, and it was incredible. I was vibrating in my seat the whole time. That's how you know it's a good musical. Yes. But to uh, pivot from one horror comedy to the next, our next musical before uh, this section of our panel is up is The Guy Who Didn't Like Musicals, which is a Team Star Kid production from 2018. Uh, this is the first musical in their sort of unofficial slash official Hatchetfield series, which is a series of horror comedy musicals they do, all set in the tiny, isolated town of Hatchetfield. Uh, like Little Shop, the guy who didn't like musicals is inspired by 1950s B-movies, specifically in this case, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And one of the things that I realized going through this musical is that I'm not sure it counts as a musical that involves murder, because I think the events that happen in Hatchetfield are so apocalyptic that it stops being a question of murder and starts being a question of just alive versus dead. So I think that shows us something, at least for me, murder intuitively requires a social context. So I'm not sure if Hatchetfield counts as actually having anybody get murdered because the people that are killed are killed in a situation that is entirely removed from societal standard. But I don't know. See, okay, I, I would say there are some kills that really do feel like murders, like the, the uh, Sam alien killing Charlotte, but... I, I will digress on that one later. Um, I was like, oh, sorry, I interrupted you. I was just gonna say, uh, to me, like I agree, murder you're needing a social construct. I would say that to me, this is more this is genocide, which is like super murder. Ooh, fair point. Murder plus, not murder, yeah. but it is worse. Mm. See, I was no. the only thought I had on that part. No, I think that's a fair one. Um, it's not, I think this is also because I didn't listen to these in the order that we're discussing them. Uh, so I just listened to Chicago and Heathers before the guy who didn't like musicals, which have murderous tools. And so I think I was also looking at it in that context. And in the guy who didn't like musicals, murder is not a, a tool for any of the characters in the story, except a tool of escape from the thing that will kill you. Uh, whereas in Chicago and Heathers, it's murder with a purpose, if you will. But the guy who didn't like musicals, it's more that the murder is a storytelling context for this apocalyptic event. Yeah. Ooh, also, I... Oh, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, you did. I will say, genuine attempted murder uh, is uh, the professor to uh, Emma and... Oh, my gosh. Was it... It is to Emma and Ted. Uh when he started singing to try to draw the aliens to convert them uh, in the That's best true, song yeah. musical, uh, Just Stopping Number. Um, like, that's the thing is, I think, I think kind of similar to Little Shop of Horrors, there's a lot of elements of like temptation and desire in this one of just like, like specifically, basically, so many of these songs are I want songs for various people. And like, there's a literal song trying to get the main character to sing an I want song so that he can turn into an alien, but he just has such unremarkable wants that he can't think <laughs> of something and just wants to leave the room, which is such a mood. Um, but does anyone want to explain the... I was, uh, going to, I was going to bring that up if you didn't, because the guy who didn't like... Sorry, 
um, I kind of jumped over your prompt. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, like, does anyone want to explain the, the plot of the musical? Sure, yeah. So the guy who didn't like musicals is kind of meta theater because we are watching a musical about a guy who didn't like musicals who is in an invasion of the body snatchers type situation where his town is being taken over by aliens that compel people to sing and dance like they're in a musical. And I was going to mention What Do You Want, Paul? Because I love it. It's a very self-conscious nod to the fact that all musicals have an I Want song, which is where their protagonist sings about what they most want. Like, if you think about a stereotypical Disney musical, they all have it. Like, Belle has, I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. Little Mermaid has part of your world. And so they're trying to prompt the main character, Paul, to sing an I Want song, and he just does not take the bait. And so the rest of the musical becomes this sort of horror movie style scenario in which Paul and his co-workers and Emma, the cute barista from across the street, are trying to escape Hatchetfield together without being taken over by the alien goo. Yeah. It's actually, it's very interesting, kind of the context of like the singing the I want song being the vector by which you get infected. Uh, and then going to the last song because he eventually gets taken over by the alien goop and inevitable, like it's kind of tragic as a result of their romance and that he finally does want something. He wants to be able to escape and live a good life with uh, Emma uh, or before he wants to be able to defeat, defeat the, the aliens so that way she can be safe. And then I think to a certain degree, I would assert that that, finally wanting that happiness in his life is what allowed him to be infected. Yeah, he sort of joins the narrative. The other interesting thing is that you could interpret the entire show as the aliens sort of reenacting how they took over Hatchetfield. Yeah, according to the, the beginning song, I guess, yeah, you could really put it that way. Which makes Inevitable even more messed up. And I can't take full credit for this because this is somebody else's analysis in the YouTube comments of the uh, pro shoot of the musical, which is free to watch on YouTube. Hot tip. Uh, but somebody pointed out that that means that Emma gets taken over by the aliens. And that actually happens, if you haven't seen it, after Inevitable, but before the curtain call. So the audience is applauding for the end of the show while Emma's actress is screaming in horror, begging the audience to help her. Which, A, is terrifying surreal horror and b also suggests that this is the alien who overtook emma reenacting her last moments before she was assimilated into the hive rude honestly also props to the cast because it was a cast of eight for the entire show and i think there are something like 12 maybe 14 maybe even more named roles and they just do it all with quick changes and memorizing a lot of stuff it's really only eight? I thought there were more. Yeah, it's a cast of just like eight people. Sheesh. That is a great job. Especially with like, there were even some moments where they were working in the dialogue, like, should I take this table or whatever it was? You know, as they're moving sets. So yeah, small cast get quite a lot. Yeah, Starkid has a lot of experience doing shows on a fairly low budget and with a fairly limited cast. So they're very good at creating very um, simple set designs that are easily convertible and getting people on and off stage quickly. It's very well done. Absolutely. Also, yeah. I love it when a musical is diegetic in the way that the guy who didn't like musicals is because a similar story with a slightly more heartwarming bent, you'd get something like that series on NBC or whatever, Zoe's Amazing Playlist, where like you get a lens into somebody's life through their I Want song. But in this case, no, it's all just people singing because they've been taken over by aliens. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's also really interesting. There's like an element uh, kind of with the I Want song, it's like of freedom and death of like, these, like the one of the most obvious ones is like the professor who just really doesn't like his life and would literally rather die and be able to get to hang out with his college bros than help these people like escape like the town from murderous aliens. Um, and there, there is a certain degree with um, 
uh, with Alice as well of just like, and to some degree, her dying finally allows her to tell her dad how she feels about the whole divorce uh, and about like her relationship with him. And uh, there's a certain degree to which for Paul, eventually like him being able, him being taken over, he is able to like express affection towards Emma much more openly and like it's it's very like the idea of like transparency through death and through music is very very interesting well it's interesting that you say that because I mean yeah I definitely agree like all the major characters even the supporting ones like when it comes to expressing their deepest desires I think I don't know that there was a desire expressed that wasn't expressed through song, you know? Um, but there was something else that she mentioned, like the progression of those desires kind of like leading these characters through the story made me think of just the progression of like musicals in general, how, you know, you start with like this character in dialogue, having this discussion or feeling this thing. And then the, like the depth of the strength of that feeling moves them to sing. And then the force of that moves them to dance. Someone else said that. Don't remember where That's I got Howard that from. But I, say it again. That's Howard Ashman, I think. Okay, well, then I believe him because I definitely agree. Um, and so kind of going back to what Maddie said about this being a very meta uh, musical, I think the fact that they're copying that progression, even in the songs, like, you know, I think I think the guy's name was Mike, the, the father of Alice. You know, he has this frustrated desire to maintain some authority uh to have this relationship with this kid and then over time we kind of see that kind of warp and it becomes this desire to save her at all costs and then it becomes this desire to end it at all cost um so now i think i'm really kind of fixing on this desire of things just ramping up because we definitely see that like things go from bad to worse pretty fast I mean, in this musical some of that is also just rules of storytelling things either have to get bad worse better or bad worse worst mm. mm-hmm and this uh, this musical clearly ends with the worst, but no, like yep. it's uh, the character's name is Bill, um, and like no, I I really like his part in it. He's he's such a deeply like tragic character because like you can you can definitely feel for him of like really wanting to connect to his daughter, but just like constantly feeling like the less cool parent. And then when you she finally Alice finally sings "Not Your Seed," you find out she's just like, "No, like I did want you in my life. You just capitulated to my mom constantly." And he doesn't know that until after she's dead. And like, there's just that. God, it just feels so. He's another character, kind of like Seymour, where it's just like, yes, his problems to a certain degree are very much his own fault, but he's so sympathetic in that way because like anyone can relate to that certain degree of just genuinely being so convinced that you're not going to get what you want, that you might as well not try. Um, and then just kind of letting things happen around you. And Paul is very similar in that way. If someone who just things happen around him and then the play shifts when things start happening to him um, and he becomes a more and more active agent. And that's when you get more and more like bits of him like singing. And it's just, it's a lot of the, like when they go see the professor as well, like he talks about how the, the musical apocalypse, it would be a net good for humanity because there'd be like no more like war or sadness or whatever. And to a certain degree as scary as the aliens are in some ways, like, they do, like, benefit people's lives. This is not me being pro-alien, by the way. Uh, I love being an Earthling who lives uh, on Earth in human skin um, instead of a musical alien. But, like, being an active participant in one's own life is both what saves the characters and kind of what dooms them, if that makes any sense. Some of I'd that like I think that. might... Sorry, Kiona, you go. I mean, I was just going to say it's kind of a daint if you do, daint if you don't scenario. Again, it's the inevitability. Like, it really is from this particular scenario. There's nothing the characters can do, and whether they come to grips with it or not, the plot doesn't care. The plot doesn't care because they get assimilated, you know? And so I guess they succumb to the ultimate desire of the invading aliens. Mm. 
I was going to say, I think some of that is also that both of these are horror comedies, emphasis on the horror, and that powerlessness is a key element in writing and telling horror stories. Your protagonist is going to be doomed if they sit there and let the monster get them, and your protagonist is going to be doomed if they go open up the cursed book to try to stop the monster from getting them. There's no escape when you're in a horror story unless you count a bad ending as an escape. So I think some of that is also just genre convention, but it is interesting that there is this element of powerlessness. Also, one thing I wanted to point out, because I had it in my notes and you brought it up, the professor kind of ending up being on the side of the aliens because he thinks they'll bring world peace reminded me of this weird like etymological quirk, which is that the word apocalypse doesn't actually mean the end of the world. It just means a revealing or an unveiling. Well, and it's so also... It's a literal apocalypse, an unveiling, a creation of transparency, which I don't think the writer, Jeff Blim, intended. I just think it's cool. Well, I think it's also very interesting, though, that they don't call it an apocalypse. They specifically say apotheosis, which is yep. referring to someone ascending to godhood. And so it's just like, it's, it's very interesting how, like, yeah, it's like, like, like you said, like, it's not like the world doesn't fully end because everyone's like still there. It's more just like you said, it's the, the revealing, the like pulling back to the I want song, but also that as like an ascension to Godhood, that as kind of like being seen as the better life, like the more ultimate life form is. I mean, that's the line the professor fell for. Yeah. Of like the, of that, that is the only way to be honest about one's feelings and get what they want. But like Paul, even as like a human person and Emma are Emma's like the, the biggest character who is fully able to be honest about what she wants. She like quits her job like on her own and like she and Paul and the, like the one scene that they're talking about, like what they want to do. She wants to like, uh, what is it? Like start a dispensary. Um, mm -hmm. And like, she's, she's able to do that without necessarily ceding control and making someone, having someone force her to do that, which is kind of like, I think the best silver bullet against the idea that like, this is an apotheosis because she is able to function non-musically, if that means anything. I agree. No, I think that's a good analysis. Just, yeah. I think, the kind of going into the whole horror deal though, like as wonderful as that would be, she does still end up getting assimilated. And so we have to wonder. And so, I mean, like definitely like before she gets assimilated, like she gets the all clear for, you know, her platform, like she's good to personal I wants, but the only way to actually get there is through the assimilation. So it was forced upon her regardless. So not to take away from the fact that she is very much like an actualized character, just that, it's just tragic that it doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. Sadly, it's... she's not that kind of final girl. Mm-hmm. No. So uh, before we take our intermission and come back for part two, uh, what were everybody's favorite songs from the guy who didn't like musicals? See, okay. The song that I really... Oh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so I mean, I mean it, you know, it really, it goes like this, unless we have like some sort of like intercoaster buzzer system or something, you know, it, it'll just be what it'll be. Or like some kind of musical tone to let you know you're going to speak. Um, I'll have to say you go first. We need a talking stick. Um, I know I said so something number was my favorite earlier, but thinking about it again, I actually like Inevitable the most because I love a good villain song, as I said before, and it's just it's it they make a kick line look threatening like that's so impressive and it's such a good medley um i also i know a lot of people don't like tied up my heart but i really really love that like it's it's uh like when when sam is trying to like get charlotte to release him because it's like you know like no that's such a dumb horror movie move but like as someone who's both a fan of horror and a psychology like what kind of makes that those moments very good is that people make very stupid, very human decisions when it comes to like deep down, she just wants to be loved so badly by her husband. And like finally in musical form, he's giving that to her and then he ends up killing her for it. And it's so, uh, that's just 
deeply, deliciously tragic. I like joined I because I liked how it sounded. I actually did think it was very catchy. I wish I could play it again to tell you exactly what. I think it was probably, it was the chorus. Uh, just in terms of the performance, it struck me as different from the other songs. Uh, yeah, in terms of tone, because it's more overtly menacing than a lot of the other ones. But also, again, like, I really liked how it sounded. And the choreo they did with the Join Us and Die, I thought that was pretty cute. Just nicely little hand, head movements. They really kind of sell that menace. Fun fact, um, Emma's actress actually did some of the chore uh, choreography for the show, Lauren Lopez. She did right. a great job. Lauren Lopez can do everything. Uh, you stole mine, Leo, because I was going to say Inevitable is my favorite uh, because I think it's the best song in the show. Um, it's the perfect downer ending. I think it also has a stealth melodic reference to Twisted, which I appreciate because there's a line about something like knowing your story. And I think they use the same melody there that they used for that motif in Twisted. And I was like, hey, I know that one. Uh, second place goes to What Do You Want, Paul? Because I appreciate a good lampshade. And also, I have to give a shout out to Jeff Blim, who not only wrote this show, but gives an absolutely unhinged performance in every single role. And also, Let Him Come, just because I think it's catchy. Like, Let Him Come, it, it's not a song in the sense that it like, moves the plot along. It's just very catchily ominous, and I appreciate that. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude the first part of this Murder Musicals panel. Do it Broadway style, go get yourself an overly expensive glass of wine and some merch, and we'll see you for part two. Until then, I'm Madeline Campbell. I'm Leo Gacy. And I'm Kiana Shabazz. And this has been the Billy Shears Club. <laughs>